done up until now is just mainly about gases or non-optically Uh, well, it depends on what you mean by optically transparent, well, because by definition, at the point where you have absorption, you lose transparency. Yes, you could. Did you say glasses or gases? Glass. Glasses. Um, yes. So the things we've been doing up until now generally can be done in solid materials. If you have a solid material, Doppler broadening usually is not an issue. So last time we talked about um, saturation effects to avoid, sat avoid Doppler broadening. That's not really necessary if you have a solid. Um, but in general, the absorption, fluorescence, spectroscopy can all be done in, in glasses or crystals or solid materials. Today's discussion will be over Raman spectroscopy, which is often done in liquids, liquids or gases. Um, it's not to say it couldn't be done in solids, but it's a technique that's typically used for complex molecules that are often found uh, in gases. Um, it's convenient to do in liquids because um, water is essentially unaffected by or doesn't contribute to the Raman scattering process. So it's easy to just dissolve something in, in water and analyze it that way. Uh, so first, an announcement. This is chapter 8 of the textbook, or at least of Demtroder. So if you have Demtroder, if you're following along at home, there's an error in 8.10. It's pretty small. That L is missing. But you might correct that. So today's discussion will be on Raman scattering. So we'll start with spontaneous Raman scattering, which is a linear effect, and just talk a little bit about uh, its value to spectroscopy, and then go on to talk about nonlinear Raman spectroscopy, which is uh, an effect that uses or a process that uses stimulated Raman scattering. Um, and we'll talk about a related technique called coherent anti-Stokes Raman spectroscopy that allows the efficiency of everything that we talk about today with Raman scattering, the efficiency of the processes can be improved with these nonlinear effects. Um, and this will probably take uh, two lectures, which means this will probably be the last topic we cover before the midterm. Okay, so in very uh, simple terms, what is Raman scattering? We'll get into the math and the pictures in a minute, but it's a process that transfers energy between molecules and photons. And as a result, the photons that are interacting get a frequency shift. There's an energy exchange. There's a change in frequency of the photons. And so the basic idea is you send a laser into a sample. There's some interaction with the molecules in the sample. The laser frequency gets shifted you measure the frequency shift on the laser. So this isn't like the types of spectroscopy where we've been talking about where we tune the laser through an atomic resonance. This is just sending in a laser and then on a spectrometer observing the different frequency components of what comes out. So and is this a subset of common scattering or a subset of this? 
Uh, we'll see in the math that this is uh, related to Rayleigh scattering. We'll see where that comes from in a minute. So to motivate this, I have a slide on why use Raman spectroscopy. Most of the reasons on here either aren't understood until we've talked about the whole method or still aren't understood to me because I don't do this for a living. But I got this from somebody who does. And some of these are at least useful motivations for why I go on and talk about this. Um, so I mentioned that you can use aqueous solutions as your sample holder. So anything that can be dissolved in water, you can study the Raman spectrum of it, since water doesn't interact with the, uh, doesn't produce uh, strong Raman scattering. In particular, water vapor and carbon dioxide vapor, which are present in the atmosphere, don't produce significant Raman scattering. And what we're going to see is that this Raman spectroscopy is used to measure the vibrational states of molecules. And does anybody remember what energy range or what, uh, what range of the spectrum molecular vibrations correspond to? They're infrared. Um, and in the infrared, water and carbon dioxide absorb. So if you try to do straight absorption spectroscopy by scanning an infrared laser through the spectrum, what you're going to probably be measuring is the absorption of water and carbon dioxide, not the, not the absorption of your sample. Okay, so this is a, a, a way to get around that. So essentially what this, this technique involves is sending visible light into a sample and seeing the, the visible light get shifted by what would be uh, infrared energy level shifts. So infrared is small energy compared to visible, so we see small frequency shifts on the visible light. Which means anything that's transparent to visible light can be used to get the light in and out of the experiment. Um, you can use fiber optics, uh, which don't work so well in the infrared. They work very well at 1.55 microns and 1.3 microns where telecommunications wavelengths are, but near those wavelengths there are large OH absorption uh, peaks in glass that prevent it from being a useful material for um, transmitting light that's in an absorption spectrum or an absorption spectrograph in the infrared. Alexander? Um, well, what I seem to remember, they, they get shifted both up and down, right? Mm -hmm. They do, yeah, we'll see that. It's called Stokes and anti-Stokes scattering. Okay, so uh, we may come back to this slide when we're done discussing the, the technique. Certainly if you do Raman spectroscopy in the lab, uh, some of these things may have more meaning to you uh, than they do to me, but um, I put it in the notes for that reason. So let's look at a picture of what's going on. Um, there's two types of interactions that we're going to talk about. Uh, as Alexander mentioned, there's one that shifts the frequency up and one that shifts the frequency of the light down. So the first, the first interaction we call Stokes scattering. It's where a molecule and a photon collide in an inelastic collision, so energy is lost, and the molecule gains energy from the photon. The photon then has to lose energy, 
And the final energy of the molecule and the photon are less than what they started with. So that energy goes somewhere. It goes into uh, heat, essentially. It goes into phonons that get carried away in the, in the liquid, if you have this in a liquid. Um, These are the energies of the molecules. This is my little diagram for a molecule. Here's my little diagram for a photon. Yeah. It's going to be vibrational motion. Is is where the effect will be strongest. So E1 and E2 are two different energy states of a molecule that are going to differ by some rotational, or I'm sorry, vibrational motion, vibrational energy. It is. The vibrational energy is included in E1. Um, I guess what's not included would be like linear motion of the molecule. So if it gets a kick and then it acquires some velocity, so we'll call that heat. And on a macroscopic scale, that's heat. And it's not included in this, in this energy. OK, so that's called Stokes scattering. It's where the molecule gains energy. Just for your reference in the pictures here, I've tried to be consistent with how I draw these. The, this is my little helium nucleus. You can see sort of an electron cloud-like thing. This picture has the electron cloud a little further away. That means higher energy. And then in my photons, this is a green one. So that's higher energy than the red photon. So there's some meaning to the colors that you'll see throughout the, the presentation. OK, so anti-Stokes scattering is, is sort of the opposite. It's still an inelastic collision of a photon and a molecule. This time, the molecule deposits energy in the photon. So you have a higher energy molecule that um, gives a kick to a photon, excites it to a higher frequency, and leaves the molecule with a lower energy state. So that's anti-Stokes scattering. So both of these are known as Raman scattering. You can consider an energy level diagram and look at what happens in this energy level diagram. If these lower states correspond to different vibrational states of the molecule, then you have a photon coming in and exciting a molecule up to some virtual energy state. This virtual energy state is just one photon energy above the ground state. And if it, if it does not correspond to a real eigenlevel of the system, then we know that that state has to be short-lived. It can only exist over an infinitesimally short time. So if that transition is going to occur, it has to be followed by a decay back to a lower state. And that decay gives off a lower energy photon and leaves the molecule in a higher energy state. Okay, it could decay back to the ground state. That's Rayleigh scattering. If it decays to a higher state, that's Raman scattering. So I've only drawn the picture on the left for Raman scattering. On the right, I've drawn the picture for resonant Raman scattering, which is just when this photon has an energy that corresponds to a real energy level. And we discussed 
when we talked about um, resonant enhanced multi-photon ionization, REMPI, which was the other two-photon process we've talked about. When you have your intermediate state corresponding to a real eigenstate, the efficiency gets increased because this can be a longer-lived state. So these two effects don't have to happen simultaneously. That increases the chances that they will both happen within the lifetime of this upper state. Other possibilities are this upper state fluoresces, decays back to a lower state. If that lower state is the ground state, that's Rayleigh scattering. And if it's a higher energy state, then that's a form of Raman scattering. But in any case, it's still fluorescent, right? Am I Certainly in this case, we wouldn't consider this fluorescence because unlike fluorescence, which has some decay time, this has to occur at the same time as the absorption. And we'll see later on that uh, this can occur in any direction, but this, what we'll call the uh, Stokes wave, can only build up coherently if this is phase matched to this, and that constrains the directions at which that can occur. So unlike fluorescence, which is isotropic, uh, this will resonantly build up along a particular propagation direction. Okay, so we can understand Raman scattering with the classical electron oscillator model that we started the class with. So we're going to go through some math. Mostly I'm just going to outline it. Um, if you're interested in going through the steps in detail, you're welcome to do that on your own time. I don't think we're going to time, or I don't want to spend the time uh, going through all of the math, but I present it so that we can at least see how the effects occur. So if mu is the, is the uh, electric dipole of a molecule, And it has, and if it has a, um, a dipole moment that's induced by an external electric field, then alpha represents what we call the polarizability of the molecule. Okay, so for example, water is a polar molecule. Right? It has a permanent dipole that's independent of any external electric field. Uh, what this is, is this is a dipole that's created by an external electric field. So think of a hydrogen atom. An external electric field pulls the electron cloud to one side. What you're left with is a separation of charges. That's a dipole. Okay. How efficiently those charges get pulled apart is measured by alpha. It tells you how much dipole moment you get for a given electric field. And if either of these things are time dependent, then you can get a time-dependent dipole moment. A time-dependent dipole moment is a radiating source. It's like a dipole antenna that's oscillating. And that will radiate radiation. That's scattered light. Okay. So an electric field excites a molecule to oscillate. 
that is the source for new radiation scattered light. Okay, so why would alpha, the polarizability, be time dependent? Well, that would be the electric field being time dependent. So if you have a molecule, that's, that's the first key. It's not time dependent in atoms. So in the example I gave with a hydrogen atom, that wouldn't be the case. But in a molecule, it might be rotating, might have some time dependent geometry, and that geometry may affect how polarizable it is. Okay, so let's consider a uh, molecule like this. This looks like carbon dioxide. And we said that there's a few different bending modes of such a molecule. There's a couple different vibrational modes. One is the bending mode. It corresponds to taking this center atom and shaking it up and down relative to the, the two side atoms. Then there's the stretching modes. So here's a symmetric stretching mode. Where the molecule is being stretched out. And there's an anti-symmetric mode not pictured here where it's like you take the center atom and you shake it back and forth while the edge atoms stay put. Any thoughts on which of these might have a time-dependent dipole moment? The bending. So why the bending? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. It doesn't look symmetric. It turns out, though, that in, the, in one sense it is symmetric. So um, let me suggest this, that the electron cloud in each atom can be pulled apart from that atom by an external electric field. And if these atoms are infinitely far apart, then they each behave independently, and that's when the uh, electron cloud can be pulled the furthest. When they get closer together, there's a stronger attraction for the electron cloud to be pulled towards this sort of axis of the molecule, because there's more charge more positive charge aligned along this axis, so there's a stronger net radial pull on the electron cloud. So in this bending mode, the atoms aren't really getting further apart, or at least the, the bond length change is only a second order effect. And certainly, if this sort of orange center atom is displaced up, and you were to ask how polarizable is the molecule, that's sort of like asking how far apart, then, are the atoms. And it's no different than if it's pointed down. And the atoms are slightly further apart than if this center atom is right in the middle. And let's compare that to the stretching mode. So in the stretching mode, where the bond lengths are stretching, when they're stretched out, these atoms are further apart, and the effect of the neighboring atoms is reduced, and the atoms behave more like free charges and are more polarizable than when they're closer together. Okay. In both cases, there's actually a time dependence, um, but the time dependence is more significant here. So there may be a 
time-dependent dipole, but that wasn't the question, is what would cause a time-dependent polar, polarizability, the ability to produce a dipole if an external electric field was applied? So I, I think that's probably, it's probably why this one looks like it's got a time-dependent dipole. It does, um, but that wasn't the question. Which one has a time-dependent ability to become a dipole when an external field is applied? So it's Right. Okay. This is just, both of these are just vibrating because they're in some vibrationally excited state. And so if we plot let's see, if we plot the two things, the dipole moment as a function of the amplitude of the motion and the motion for this molecule being bending, for this one being an anti-symmetric stretch, and this one being a symmetric stretch. This one never has a, a permanent dipole. Linear atoms, uh, there's no asymmetry, so the dipole moment is zero regardless of how far apart you pull these atoms. Um, and these other, the bending mode and the anti-symmetric stretching mode do have a permanent dipole that depends on the relative uh, displacement of the mode, the amplitude of the mode. Okay, but again, that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in the polarizability, which is alpha. And if we look at alpha, polarizability as a function of the displacement of the, uh, the mode, we find that for these two, Alpha is symmetric. And that means around zero displacement, there's essentially no change in alpha. Or it's a second order effect. But over here for the stretching mode, alpha is not symmetric. That means at zero, at small displacements, there's a net change in the polarizability as the displacement of the molecule changes. So this is just saying, when these atoms get further apart, moving to the right on this graph, the atom becomes more polarizable. It increases when they get closer together. There's stronger forces pulling the electrons in. It's harder to polarize it. Okay, and over here, for any of this motion, the greater the bond, or the greater the molecule gets displaced from equilibrium in all three cases, the further apart, on average, the charges become and the more polarizable they, they become. And it doesn't matter which way you displace the molecule. And so, our criteria that we're interested in for what will be what we call a Raman active molecule, one that produces the Raman effect, will be one where the slope of this curve at zero is not zero. So where alpha is not a symmetric function. So for this mode, alpha is not symmetric. For these two modes, it is. And what that will tell us is that this mode, we'll see, is Raman active. These two modes will not be. It will not produce Raman scattering. So to see that, we need to go through the math a little bit more. First thing we'll do is do Taylor series expansion 
of the polarizability. We said it was time dependent. And so we can expand it. There's some DC term. And there's some slope that we can evaluate at zero. Okay, so in that last plot that I showed of alpha versus some displacement, this value is alpha naught. This slope is d alpha dx. And here we're summing over all Q. Q is all the different modes that the, that the molecule may have. So that molecule had three different modes. So we have to expand this with respect to the displacement of each mode. So this is the slope, and this is the amount of displacement. The amount of bending, the amount of stretching, the amount of antisymmetric stretching. OK, so x, this term here, is the displacement of the mode. If it's a simple harmonic oscillator, it's going to have some amplitude and some frequency at which it's oscillating at. And if this is being driven by an electric field, we can assume we have a plane wave electric field. We'll do that analysis. So we have sinusoidal electric field. Then the time-dependent dipole moment is the polarizability times the electric field. So here's our electric field. Here's our polarizability. This term times this constant is not interesting. That's just the um, just the time-independent part of the dipole moment. This term over here is where all the time dependence is. And it involves a sine of one frequency times a sine of another. So we can use the trig relation that sine A times sine B is 1 half cosine of the difference minus cosine of the sum of the arguments. Okay, so. Here's the cosine of the difference. Here's the cosine of the sum. And now we can look at each one of these terms and identify them. This term is Rayleigh scattering. It is a time-dependent dipole moment at the same frequency as the light. So the light is exciting the dipole. It's exciting the electron cloud to oscillate at the, the frequency of the light. And as a result, that radiates radiates isotropically in all directions. And that means it's scattering. It's not, well, I shouldn't say it's isotropic. It depends on the, the uh, directionality. We'll see that alpha, more specifically, is a, is a tensor. But it's not necessarily directed along the direction of, of the uh, incident radiation. So that's scattering. And experimentally, that affects about 1 in, ten, one in 1,000 photons. So typical Rayleigh scattering is on the order of uh, 1 1,000th. Next, we have this term, which is downshifted in frequency. So it's 
downshifted in energy. That's the Stokes scattering. Stokes scattering was when the photon lost energy to the molecule. So here's the scattered photon. It has less energy. Um, that's less common than Rayleigh scattering. It affects about uh, 100 parts per billion. And then that term over there is going to be the anti-Stokes scattering. It's an upshifted frequency, so the photon gains energy. And it affects less than 1 part in 10 to the 7. This is uh, less significant than the Stokes scattering. Okay, so first thing to note is that let me go back and point this out. All these, these scattering terms had a d alpha dx in front of them. That was the slope of this polarizability. So if the slope is 0, then these scattering terms are 0. So you only get Stokes and anti-Stokes scattering if you have what we call a Raman active molecule one has some vibrational mode where d alpha dx is not zero. We can look at a spectrum that has uh, light that's incident on some material at this wavelength. And if we look at the light that's um, scattered from the material and look at its spectrum, there's a large peak at that wavelength. That's the Rayleigh scattering. Essentially, you can think of it as photons just elastically scattering off of the molecules and coming into our detector. And that's the largest, we said, by about a factor of 1,000, larger than these other uh, Stokes and anti-Stokes scattering. So on this scale, that gets truncated. And we can see these peaks here that are Stokes scattering. And then these peaks on the other side that are, I guess, uh, upshifted in frequency are anti-Stokes scattering. So you can see the anti-Stokes in this spectrum is less intense than the Stokes radiation. Why might that be? What's that? We have less anti-Stokes radiation because we have fewer molecules that start in the excited state, just by the thermal distribution of energy levels. Neil? Is this like omnidirectional? Well, it depends on the molecular alignment of the material. If you have randomly oriented molecules, then it would more or less be omnidirectional. But if you have order to the molecules, like you might have in a crystal or something like that, um, then there could be directionality to it. Um, and then again, like I said, if we talk about, we'll talk about in a, a few minutes, uh, stimulated Raman scattering, which is an effect where the scattered light adds coherently with light that was already in the that was already scattered. And this only occurs at a particular direction that corresponds to phase matching in the material. So if you think about a system in thermal equilibrium, there's more 
population in the lowest state than there are in the higher energy states. So Stokes scattering corresponds to a low energy state getting shifted to a higher energy state. Anti-Stokes corresponds to a higher energy state getting shifted back down. And so the relative population or the relative intensity of these two waves corresponds to the Boltzmann distribution. So it can be used as a measure of the temperature of the sample, for instance. Um, and it, it's the reason why the anti-Stokes scattering is less significant. Okay, so that's all classical theory. It explains the energy level or the uh, frequency shifts we see on the light. It doesn't tell you how strong the scattering is. I, I just told you, I just said Rayleigh scattering is a part in 10 to the 10 to the 3, Stokes is a part in 10 to the 7th, anti-Stokes is less than that. To understand the magnitude of the scattering, you need a full quantum treatment. We're not going to do that, but here's the result. This gives the cross-section for Raman scattering. The cross-section is directly proportional to the strength of the scattering. So there's a few things we can see. There's this omega to the fourth term. So that means it scales as 1 over the wavelength to the fourth. So the, um, the strength of the transition scales uh, inversely as the fourth product of the wavelength. And that's the wavelength of the transition? That's the wavelength of the Stokes radiation. So, ah, uh, that's a very good question. The way I have it written would suggest it's the Stokes radiation, but I'll have to look that up to confirm that. You'll notice in the denominator, there's the difference between the two molecular energy levels. That's what this omega ij is. That's the vibrational energy. I'm sorry. Um, I got that wrong. This is a transition from energy level i to energy level f, which means J is the intermediate energy level. And we're summing over all possible intermediate energy levels. So if J is a real energy level and our laser is tuned to that transition, this denominator becomes small, the scattering cross-section becomes large, that's resonant Raman scattering. That's when the laser is tuned to a real energy level. So then omega JF is the transition from that from that excited state down to our uh, final state. So it's polarization dependent. This is the polarization of the incident laser. This is the polarization of the scattered light. So it's going to be strongest when those are in the same direction. So you tend to get 
the scattered light of the same polarization as the incident light. And it has a line width that's given by the line width of the intermediate state. So this is the line width of state J, which is our intermediate state. Uh, good question. If it's a virtual transition, the time, lifetime is zero, this becomes infinite, and uh, this whole thing becomes small. So, in reality, when you tune the laser far from a transition, um, omega naught is far from omega j you can still talk about the line width of transition J. You're tuned far away from it. And so this denominator is big. So that would be the, rather than considering J a virtual energy level, we're just going to sum over the real energy levels. And when we're not near one, we just don't get the resonant enhancement. So don't, don't think of that as the line width of a virtual state. It's just think of it as being far from the line width of a real state. So typical cross-sections are on the order of 10 to the minus 30 centimeters squared. That's much smaller than we've seen for absorption cross-sections. We've been dealing with things that are anywhere from 10 to the minus 14 to 10 to the minus 24. So you have low interaction rate between your laser and your... You have a, a low amount of uh, scattered light, so you need to do some special experimental techniques to be able to see the very dim scattered light. So one thing you may need to do is increase the interaction length. It's commonly done either using a multipass cell. That was uh, discussed in that first paper that we read. On, uh, it's briefly discussed as an alternative method to the cavity ring down spectroscopy. But a multipass cell is just bouncing the light back and forth many times through your sample. Um, capillary fibers are essentially fiber optics where there's a region in the center of the fiber that can suck up liquid and then the liquid can guide the light through the uh, fiber and so that liquid could contain your sample so increasing the interaction length is important having sensitive detectors is important so we've seen that photomultiplier tubes or, um, or I put on here cooled CCDs where the noise level of a CCD is reduced is important in detecting sort of single photon and low photon counts. And then differential techniques to isolate our Raman effect from background noise is also important. We've talked about that with uh, lock and amplifiers or differential measurements. Okay, so there's uh, a number of ways to increase the interaction length. Talk about some of them here. One is with a resonant cavity. So a resonant cavity causes the light to bounce back and forth between mirrors. Um, those mirrors have to be held an integer number of wavelengths apart. And as a result, the uh, interaction length increases by approximately the finesse of the cavity. The finesse divided by pi gives you the effective increased interaction length. The problem with that is it only works at certain wavelengths. 
And it only works at wavelengths that are resonant in the cavity. So um, whether that's a problem or not, it's a constraint. The Harriet cell is an alternative we mentioned last time, last time we've, we've mentioned previously, where light just bounces back and forth between mirrors, but it doesn't uh, overlap with itself on each bounce. So you don't have interference. You don't have the requirement that the beams add up constructively. Uh, you just have a geometrical multi-passing of the material between the mirrors. Typically, you have a hole cut in the mirror so that the beam is re-imaged onto the entrance aperture. It bounces around between the mirrors and eventually comes back to where it started. And if that's where the hole is, the light can go in and out of the hole. It will be uh, separated in angle at that point. And then the capillary fibers, which I mentioned, just physically increase the path length by putting the sample in a very narrow but long material. Okay, so the Harriet cell, these are actually pictures of one of my experiments that use a Harriet cell. You can see a picture of rays propagating back and forth between two curved mirrors. This represents the spot pattern of light on the mirror. So here's a hole drilled in the perimeter of the mirror. Light coming in through that hole is aimed at the mirror that sits uh, across from this to the, so this is a 12 o'clock position. The light is aimed to the 3 o'clock position on the far mirror, comes back here and hits at the 6 o'clock position. This is spot 2. This is the zeroth spot. The first spot is over here on the other mirror. Second spot comes back here. The fourth spot ends up right here. So every time it goes back and forth, the position of the beam rotates by about 180 degrees. It goes around twice. It goes a little bit beyond where it came in. So this is the fourth spot, the eighth, twelfth. So the beam just walks around the perimeter of the mirror until the thirtieth spot, in this case, overlaps with that initial spot, and the light comes out. So here's an image of that. You can see the spots are small here where the entrance hole is. And then they expand as they go around. Over here, they're large and overlapping. That's why we see interference fringes. And they get focused back down. This is the case where the two mirrors are not confocal. When they're confocal, each spot is the same size. And that doesn't as efficiently fill the mirror, so you don't get as many spots or as many uh, multi-passes. These are the two geometries. If your mirrors aren't spherical, if they're aspheric, you can get these Lissajou patterns as well. So the first order Lissajou is the first order Lissajou pattern. Maybe it's a zeroth is a circle. Then you have a figure eight. And then you start to see all the little Star Trek waveforms that you see on the oscilloscopes. Okay, so those are, that's a method to increase the interaction length. I mentioned uh, you also needed to uh, have sensitive detection. So that involves photomultiplier tubes, uh, maybe either modulating your signal so that you can detect it with a lock-in or doing differential readout. So here's a combination of the two. Um, this is a sample that's put in a rotating drum. It's a little hard to see, but um, this is a little rotating drum. It's got a divider down the middle so that 
Some sample fills half of that drum, the other half is empty. And the beam travels through a cord of the drum. Meaning as the drum rotates, the beam will alternate from going through the sample half to the evacuated half. And so you're essentially modulating your beam with the signal. Whatever the effect of the, uh, the sample is, that will be seen at whatever the rotation rate of the drum is. So you can demodulate at that frequency, and whatever signal you demodulate is your, is your differential signal. You can think of it as comparing the signal seen when the sample's in the path to when it's not in the path. And point out that one of the advantages here is that if you're using a fluid that can have some sort of damage due to the thermal, the heat generated during this inelastic process, that by rotating the fluid, which is essentially what's done in a, a dye laser, by rotating the fluid or moving the fluid out of the interaction path, you can essentially spread that heat out over a larger range and avoid thermal damage of the, of the sample. Okay, so what do we measure? What's the point of doing the Raman spectroscopy? Um, how is this effect useful? So the things you can learn are some of the things that we've seen in other types of spectroscopy. You can learn about the line width of the relevant transitions, if you can resolve them. Um, generally, we're measuring the scattered light with a prism spectrometer or a grading spectrometer or some sort of uh, device that has much lower resolution than some of the laser spectroscopy methods we've talked about. So you may or may not be able to measure the line width, but if you can, you can learn about it. Tells you something about the lifetime of the excited states. Because the amount of scattered light depends on the relative polarization of the uh, scattered light and the uh, incident light, you can infer something about the, um, you can measure the degree of polarization and use that to infer something about the directionality of the molecules. And by measuring the intensity of the lines, you can infer things like the temperature, or some of those uh, quantum mechanical properties that went into the calculation of the intensity. So typically the spectrum is in the infrared, sort of, if that's still near, I don't know if that's considered near infrared or not. It's the far near infrared. Um, so that's the vibrational states. So all these things tell us information about the vibrational states of matter. Um, okay, so that's what we measure. What do we learn? The line width tells us information about the, uh, about the lifetime. If it's a Doppler broad line width, it tells us about the temperature of the gas. The polarizability the degree of polarization that we measure, which can be defined as the, a normalized ratio of the, uh, the two polarization states, can mathematically be related to the different values of the 
polarizability tensor. So I, we described the polarizability. We didn't really describe its tensor nature. But it depends on the orientation of the molecule, how polarizable it is. And so it's a tensor, and it has terms x, x, y, y, z, z, and then cross terms. And all those cross terms relate to the degree of polarization of the scattered light. So you can. Are what is what constant? Yeah, this is worked out in Demtroder, these numbers. Um, what's different is depending on the material, you have different, different properties for the polarizability. But these go into it. These can be used to mathematically determine the degree of polarization, which you can then measure and compare to infer this. So yeah, yeah th these numbers are constant, independent of material. So the intensity of the lines tells us about the scattering cross-section. Bigger scattering cross-section means more intense lines. Um, and it also tells us about the initial density of molecules. Remember, the absorption coefficient is sigma times n. So what we measure is the absorption coefficient. If we know the density of molecules, we can infer the cross-section. If we know the cross-section, we can infer the number density of molecules. And as I mentioned, because the population of the excited states is temperature dependent, if you compare the strength of the uh, Stokes radiation to the anti-Stokes, you can infer the, the temperature of the material. Okay, so um, why don't we take a break for a minute? This, this cross-section that you find is, is, is more... Are there any cross-sections or like for other non-random scattering That's different. So that Raman scattering cross-section we uh, wrote as sigma r i to f. That means from uh, the R represents, this is a specific cross-section. It's this cross-section for Raman scattering. And it's not related to the cross-section for general absorption or the cross-section for um, so collisions. Well, we'd have to go back and look at the equation that told us that. So let's do that and just look at some of the parameters in it. You may care about that because you're interested in learning about some of these, there it is, some of the parameters that go into, that go into this, like the degree of polarization, um, the polarizability is related to the geometry of the molecule, right? So if you know the cross-section, uh, you can infer something about magnitude of these, um, the polarizability, that can tell you something about the geometry of the molecule, which you may care for chemical purposes. Um, or another very practical reason is you can use this Raman scattering to make lasers. Okay, you can use the excited vibrational modes to make infrared lasers. 
And so if you're interested in exploring different materials to see which ones would make efficient lasers, you'd want one that has a large Raman cross-section. No. Uh, it has to be Raman active, so it has to have a uh, asymmetric polarizability. Okay, so not all materials have that. They have to be molecules. So atoms won't have that. And then the molecules have to have an as this a particular vibrational mode that produces an asymmetric uh, polarizability. Right here? Yeah. I believe that's a time average. What do you mean? So alpha is polarizability, so it's the polarizability from C, J to F. I don't know what I mean. Um, well, it's the polarizability, yeah, at frequencies corresponding to that transition from J to I or I to F. Right? And it may, it may be frequency dependent because if you're, um, the time dependence of the polarizability is generally going to be, come from the time dependence of the, the uh, vibrational mo mode. Right? That is particular frequency. But um, I, have to, I have to go back and look, look in the text to decipher um, each of those terms. Neither, it's a tensor. Uh, I haven't written it that way, so this isn't a um, this isn't a rigorous calculation. Um, it's a tensor because it depends on the direction of the molecule and the direction of the electric field. Okay, so you know, in our example, I was saying that the uh, linear molecule, the charges can be displaced from that axial from that axis, right? So if the electric field is radial relative to the axis of the molecule, it will be polarizable. If it's along the axis, it wouldn't. So it's a tensor. Alpha is a tensor. Okay. So I'm not presenting the full tensor analysis, um, although we will see, and we, we just did see, um, some equations that depend on the tensor components. Well, the derivative, you take the derivative with respect to each direction. Um, so yes, it is still a tensor. Okay. So then the tensor acts on vector x would still be a vector. Yeah. And then we took that and we dotted the electric field, right? To find me? Yeah. But then that would give us a vector. A vector dotted with a vector would give us a scalar. scalar. Well, mu is a vector. But mu is a vector. So I said this gave us a vector. Uh, I'd have to look. It may, let's see, it would be like a 3 by 3. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, a vector dotted with a tensor doesn't necessarily give a vector. It can give another tensor of reduced rank. That reduced rank tensor could be a vector, or it could be another scalar, or another. Or it could be a scalar ten, a vector, or a reduced rank tensor. Okay, uh, I can check into that, but I don't have an answer off the top of my head. Oh, right. So I didn't didn't yet discuss uh, this slide. This is now starting with the nonlinear Raman scattering. So what we've been talking about so far is the linear Raman scattering, or we call it spontaneous Raman scattering. And we started with the assumption that this polarizability could be expressed as a Taylor series, and we only considered the zero and first order terms. The zeroth order term wasn't interesting to us because it wasn't time dependent. It didn't give rise to the Stokes or anti-Stokes scattering. The first order term did. Um, if you consider higher order terms, right, then you have higher order nonlinearities, or you have nonlinearities in the system. Um, and indeed, if you have enough intensity, there's a couple different ways about thinking about it. If you have enough intensity, you can uh, distort the electron cloud so that they're not, no longer linearly responding, responding to the force. Another way of thinking of it is you can have uh, a single photon uh, producing this Raman shift, an additional photon then interacting with the uh, upshifted energy level to produce an anti-Stokes scattering. And so you get essentially what is four-wave mixing, two input photons producing a, a uh, Stokes and an anti-Stokes photon, and that's the nonlinear Raman scattering. Uh, so we'll talk about that. It turns out that's uh, useful because it allows you to enhance the strength of the scattering. Okay, so in, again, in very simple terms, starting with just a couple sentences, and then we'll go through the pictures and the map. What is stimulated Raman scattering? And it is the beating between two fields. Those two fields are going to be our incident laser and our Stokes radiation field. So our laser and our scattered light. And because they're at different frequencies, they produce a beat note. That beat note is going to correspond to the frequency of vibration of the molecule. If that, uh, that's an electric field that's oscillating at the uh, vibrational frequency of the molecule, and it can drive that molecular vibration. So the molecule is vibrating because it absorbed a photon. A photon got absorbed and then emitted a, a Stokes scattered photon. That created a vibrating, uh, a vibrating molecule. And then the radiation that was scattered interacts with the incident light to further drive that vibration. You get this resonant effect. So this vibrating molecule modulates the index of refraction of the material. It's one way to think about how it interacts with the light. And that acts as a, a frequency modulator for the, the laser and shifts the laser frequency up and down by that vibrational frequency. And those shifts are the Stokes and anti-Stokes fields. Okay, so here we again consider our 
dipole moment, alpha dot E, and it'll be useful to look at the potential energy of the molecule, or of the dipole, in an external electric field. So we get alpha dot E dot E, that's the potential energy. The force is the spatial derivative of that, or minus the gradient of U. So when we take the gradient of this, we have this term, which we've seen before, um, the spatial dependence of the polarizability. This looks like the, uh, the term that depend determined whether a molecule is Raman active or not, times E squared. Okay, so there's a force on the molecule if it's Raman active, is the way we're looking at this. We'll consider that the driving force and then treat the molecule as a simple harmonic oscillator. So we've seen. Yeah. say that should probably be an X. And then yeah, I don't explicitly state. I think I think what I want to say here is this is the sum over all x, and what x represents is the displacement along any particular mode of vibration. That's what we did before. This x wasn't the Cartesian coordinate x, but it was uh, the amount of displacement in any given mode, and then I summed over all the modes. And I think that's, that's what I want to do there. That's an error. So here's our equation for a forced harmonic oscillator. We went through this when we were deriving um, the interaction of light and matter in the first uh, part of the class. There's, let's see, this driving force, which we just discussed. This is the restoring force. It's like the spring constant of the material. I've divided everything by a mass. So m omega squared is a spring constant times x. That's Hooke's law. This is a damping term. It's a velocity. Remember, we initially introduced gamma as the damping on an electron oscillator rather than the line width. We later found out that equaled the line width. And then this is the acceleration. So we have mass times acceleration. And then we have all these different forces, which are put on different sides of the equation. And the electric field that we're exciting this with, a couple things to notice. This is, for, this is electric field squared now. That's where the nonlinearity comes from. The electric field that we're interested in is that which has a laser field or a component at the laser frequency and a component at the Stokes frequency. 
So if we have both of those fields present, they're going to have different frequencies. And when I square them, I'm going to get a cross term. That cross term is the beating of the two different frequencies. And that's what drives the system, which has a uh, resonant frequency at omega sub v, the vibrational frequency. So that difference frequency equals the vibrational frequency. We're going to get a resonant. We're driving this thing on resonance. Okay, so here is that cross term. Right, it's 2 times the product of the amplitudes. And then we're interested in components at the different frequency. So when this equals the vibrational frequency, we expect to be driving it on resonance and to see a large amplitude of motion. Okay, so the solution we get the exact same way we got the solution of the, the uh, forced electron oscillator before. It has exactly the same form. I'm not going to drive it again. Um, but this functional form here, we have a Lorentzian. In the denominator, we have some quantity squared plus the imaginary part of some quantity. It's exactly the form we had for the Lorentzian we derived from the classical electron oscillator. Um, the magnitude of the driving force is proportional to the product of those two fields. Again, because we have uh, the interaction of the two fields driving the system. And when the difference between the laser and the Stokes radiation equals the vibrational frequency, then this first part, this real part of the denominator equals zero. And the denominator becomes small. The displacement becomes large. And it's only limited then by the amount of damping. Okay, and likewise, when this is detuned away from the vibrational frequency, such that this quantity is the magnitude of this quantity, that describes the line width. And that line width is given by gamma. So it has all the same properties that we saw before. It's derived in exactly the same way. So if that's the displacement of the molecule, then we can write the polarization of the material as the number of molecules times their dipole moment. The dipole moment was alpha naught times E, or I'm sorry, alpha times E. And alpha was alpha naught plus then the first order Taylor expansion was one half d alpha dx times x. Plug this value for x into here. And I get the polarization of the material. So it has the same has a term with the same functional form as the displacement. And this polarization is what causes the index of refraction of a material to be something other than 1. And it's oscillating at the, um, at the Stokes frequency. So as a result, we have a polarization, or an index of refraction, that's oscillating at the frequency of, uh, of the Stokes radiation. So it's going to parametrically enhance the Stokes radiation. So we can see that. Again, I'm glossing over a lot of the math just in order to get to the results, um, not bog us down in the details. But this is the wave equation for an inhomogeneous material with loss. Um, 
if we p minus the linear, this is the polarization, this is the linear polarization. The difference here is the time dependent component of the polarization. Um, sigma is the charge density in the material that gives rise to loss. This is the normal term that you have in a, a homogeneous lossless wave equation. And when I solve this, I can solve this by replacing all the dels with iks, the d by dt's with i omegas, and then requiring the real and imaginary parts equal. The result is that the growth or decay of the Stokes field as it goes through the material depends on the magnitude of the Stokes field. So it's an exponential growth or an exponential decay. And this is the decay constant. It has a term that's negative, that's loss, depends on sigma, which was the charge density, which I said was loss. And it has a term which now depends on these, on the, uh, the Raman activity of the material. The Raman activity and the vibrational frequency. So if this term is negative and this term is positive, if this term is bigger than this one, we have loss. If this term is bigger than that one, we have gain. Right, so we can write the Stokes field as some initial value times an exponential as it goes through the material. And G is the gain, A is the loss. If the gain is greater than the loss, you have exponential growth. There's your Raman laser. Otherwise, you have exponential decay. So the magnitude of the gain over here depends on the laser field squared. So you need high intensity laser fields. Oops, I thought I had a you know, high Okay, yeah, that's what I was thinking so. So you need this term to be large, which means you need Raman activity and you need a high intensity laser field. In order to see this, and it turns on at a certain point. So as you turn up the power of the laser, G gets bigger, and not until G exceeds A do you see gain. So this is an effect that you don't see at all at low power, it's nonlinear, and then it turns on at some point. Um, that's why this is, uh, this is commonly seen like in fibers, high power going through fibers. The light gets focused into a small waveguide and, and guided, and in that small waveguide, the intensity is very large try to turn up the power through a fiber, eventually you get stimulated Raman scattering and it steals light away from your laser. It limits how much power you can put through a fiber. The zero. Evaluated, so because this is a Taylor series, this is the derivative evaluated at zero displacement right here. Uh, okay. right, so.
Okay, so uh, that was the classical picture. We can think about this in the quantum picture as well. Uh, this is what we call a four-wave mixing process. So if you've done any nonlinear optics, um, that's a term that's probably familiar to you. We can think of two incident photons from our laser. That's at the laser frequency. Interacting with the material to produce two output photons, one that's shifted up in frequency and one that's shifted down. And those are the four waves. Two input waves, two output waves. So one input photon takes light from the ground state and through a Stokes transition or Stokes scattering process excites the molecule to an excited state. And then the next photon causes that excited state to decay be an anti-Stokes transition to the ground state. See, so I'm just going to very quickly mention now, and then when we start the next class, this is where we'll start from. We'll go over in a little more detail, but just to preview what we're going to do next. Um, it's a four-wave mixing process, just like any nonlinear optics process, energy and momentum need to be conserved. Uh, so energy conservation says that the energy of the two photons going in equals that coming out. Um, and that's, that's uh, met by the fact that the average energy of these two photons is, is that of the uh, energy of the incident photons. But the momentum needs to be conserved as well, and that requires what's called phase matching. So if you have a dispersive material, then the uh, momentum or the k-vectors of the anti-Stokes and Stokes fields are not going to be the same, or not going to be proportional to the k-vectors of the incident field. And so summing momentums is equivalent to summing k-vectors. The momentum of, of a photon is h bar k. So the sum of the incident momentum can be drawn as two vectors, two of the k vectors for the incident photon in the direction that the incident wave is going. And that has to equal the sum of the anti-Stokes and Stokes momentum. And so if these vectors don't add up to be the same length as two vectors of the incident wave, then the only way they can add up vectorally is if they're not in the same direction. As a result, you can sort of see what happens here. Um, if you send, say, green light in, along the axis, you see red-shifted and blue-shifted light coming off off-axis. You see a cone of radiation coming out. And so there can be a directionality to the Stokes and anti-Stokes radiation when it's resonantly enhanced like this. Okay, so we'll pick up there next time. Um, and I'll try, to, I'll try to answer some of those questions you were asking. Uh, can you 